It's a big world, and survival depends on the quality of your decisions. You need a diverse viewpoint to see all the opportunities around you. Now is the time, and this is the place. This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. We're telling you this so you can make your own independent evaluation of these opportunities. Also, as with most leading-edge opportunities, if you can't afford to potentially lose your investment, don't risk it. We make no personal recommendations about any sponsor on this program. We encourage you to do your own research. Yes, we do as much due diligence as possible, but nothing is completely predictable in this big world. Here's an idea. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit us at ellismartinreport.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Kyle Floyd, Chairman and CEO of Vox Royalty, trading as VOX on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. on the OTC as VOXCF. Vox is a high-growth precious metals royalty and streaming company with a portfolio of over 50 royalties and streams, spanning eight jurisdictions. The company was established in 2014 and has since built unique intellectual property, a technically focused transactional team, and a global sourcing network which has allowed Vox to become the fastest-growing company in the royalty sector. Since the beginning of 2019, Vox has announced over 20 separate transactions to acquire over 45 royalties. Mr. Floyd created the concept, built the team, and raised the capital required to commence Vox's operations as a metal royalty and streaming company. He's responsible for general operations and strategic direction of the business and has helped lead the company to becoming one of the fastest growing mining royalty businesses over the past two years. Prior to Vox, Mr. Floyd held the position of Vice President Practice Lead of the Global Mining Investment Banking Department at Roth Capital Partners from 2007 to 2013. During his time at the company, he led the international OTCQ and cross-border listing advisory group and led business development execution on all mining transactions, ultimately financing and advising nearly $1 billion over more than 60 transactions, including M&A assignments, private placements of debt and equity, IPOs, and follow-on offerings. Kyle holds a Bachelor of Business in Corporate Finance from the University of Washington and attended the Master of Science program in Mineral Economics from the Colorado School of Mines. Kyle, welcome to the program. Nice to have you on the air with us. Alice, pleasure to be here. If you don't mind, give our audience an overview of Vox Royalty. Vox Royalty Corp is a specialist royalty company acquiring third-party royalties all around the world. We have a portfolio of 54 global royalty assets, predominantly precious metal weighted. We have a core expertise in finding royalties held by disparate sellers all over the world. We bring those in an aggregate for our shareholders, and we do it at great value in terms of building a portfolio for our business and for our shareholders. As I understand it, 75% of your portfolio resides in Australia. Explain that if you don't mind. We focused on Australia because we believe it's the best mining jurisdiction on the planet. It's also where we have specific intellectual property advantages. We also have intellectual capital advantages. There is 
Three of our key business development executives are Australian citizens. And by virtue of gold being the most explored for commodity since the beginning of time, and a tremendous amount of exploration that's been done in Australia over the decades and over the centuries, there are more gold deposits that we can find royalties over. And so it's created this nice organic focus on gold royalties and also a focus on being able to find royalties at great value. When the gold market is flat, like it has been for the last few months, do you increase your exposure in other ends of the sector like battery metals or base metals? It's a great question. We don't chase what's running. In fact, we prefer to be buying what's not running. And that's where the database and our intellectual property advantages and our ability to find interesting royalties the world over really allows us the flexibility to go after certain commodities and certain royalties that have not realized what will be a full value yet in terms of the purchase price that we will have to pay. So we don't like to chase what's hot. We actually like to chase what is fundamentally good value, first and foremost, over great assets, because great assets win at the end of the day, and great assets will win whether commodity prices up or down. Bad assets will only win when commodity prices are high. And so we look for quality assets at good valuations, and our business gives us the flexibility to do that very, very well. What stage of development are these assets? And are they greenfield? Are they brownfield? Is there a mix? And how important is it for these assets to go into production quickly? Or do you have patience? What we target are royalties or projects that are anywhere from three months to two years out from production. That's our core focus and what we're looking to find when we are looking at assets. That being said, sometimes we'll go a little bit earlier and sometimes we'll actually buy something that's in production. But it all has to be done at a value that's accretive across really three key areas of financial returns for our shareholders. That's net asset value, that's price to cash flow multiples, and that's an absolute bottom line risk-adjusted return on the asset. Most royalty companies don't look at their investments that way. Vox does, and it's because we have the capability to do so in finding value globally. But that focus is really on late stage development assets where our mining engineers and our geologists who are on the front lines of our business can pick really good assets that have really good royalties over them and bring those into our portfolio. You have something which I haven't come across before, and I think it's really interesting. I'm going to call it a bit of a secret sauce. Your acquisition, I believe, last year of mineral royalties online with a proprietary database of 7,000 global royalties and 500 historical royalty transactions. That was a really exciting transaction for our business and our shareholders. And frankly, at the time, it felt like a very, very big purchase price would be $2.1 million to acquire that database and acquire the team that built it and Spencer Cole and Rian Easter, who's in, who were two of the most sophisticated yet under the radar individuals in the royalty sector. This database was built through first principles. What does that mean? That means going to mining ministries, mining cadastres, exploration offices all around the world and working deals and pulling in that hard copy data and digitizing it. A lot of that data, no longer available, probably anywhere. That's a huge proprietary advantage for us. But one thing to really understand about this database is it's not a static document. We continue to build on it, but what it's really used for is we're scanning the globe every minute of every day, essentially. We have people all over the world. We're you know, really a company that doesn't sleep looking for projects that have interesting developments and interesting technical qualities that we believe present a very, very good risk-adjusted opportunity for us to purchase a royalty over. And so the database allows us to take a project and then see if there is a royalty over it, see if there's reserves over it, and see who the owner is. And so it really just helps speed up the process. In some cases, it does just present a royalty opportunity, but a lot of times it's really leveraged to 
take a good project and understand if there's a royalty over that we can purchase. I understand that you're finding royalties that not even the owners of the property are aware of. How does that even happen? Those are some of the most interesting discussions that we have and interesting opportunities that we find. So Vox has purchased royalties from a telecommunications business, from a hearing technology business, from an automotive parts company. We've had deals lined up to buy royalties from construction companies. You would not believe the disparate group of sellers. We've had a doctor in West Africa that held a royalty that was very interesting that unfortunately, get into this more detail later, but got Roford from us. We have acquired royalties from probably the most eclectic group of sellers on the planet, which means these are non-core holders of royalties. These are non-core assets, which in our situation means there's an interest in transacting. You have to figure out what fair value is, but there's an interest in transacting. So that's been really helpful for our business. And a lot of this is essentially informed by the database. It says who the owners are. It gives us enough detail to know that there's a royalty there that's not in the hands of anybody else. And then our deal sourcing agents help us connect with these disparate companies, disparate owners all around the world and have a personal connection with the seller and enables us to transact in more volume at better value than anybody else prior to us. Certainly sounds exciting. And I've not heard of this before. And it's proprietary, which means you own it. Nobody else does. So you know about opportunities that nobody can really have access to. Yeah, and it's interesting. And we were a first mover in that capacity. We knew that there would be copycats. There was a royalty company that came out yesterday that announced that they acquired some sort of IP over royalties. I won't name who they are, but I would really challenge them on what IP they acquired. And we were were out building IP and looking for whoever else could have done it better or was more advanced than us. And we found it and we paid for it. We didn't do it because it was an in vogue statement to make. We did it because it was a fundamental advantage for our business. And I think our ability to find royalties in non-brokered situations with disparate counterparties the world over has obviously demonstrated the value of that database and has added a significant amount of value for our shareholders and will continue to do so. One thing I've noticed about you and your company and in all the years I've been covering this mining sector is that you really pay pay attention to so-called competition. I exist personally in a world where I don't look at a competition. Of course, everybody's going after the same dollar, and I guess that's when you have to consider competition, but you're kind of focused on it. Why is that? We're actually focused on being where there isn't competition, but you have to know where your competition is and what they're doing to make sure that you're in the right places or ahead of everybody else. So you cannot be blind to competition. I don't think you can be blind to competition in any industry, and so we certainly aren't. We pay attention to what our competition is doing. We understand what they're looking for, but we fundamentally started building this business with the motivation and with the keen understanding that we needed to be in uncompetitive waters and we needed to be able to find the right deals for us at the right valuations. And if you're in the ultra competitive market that royalty companies are, where most are just competing on cost of capital, it's either not likely to be a success or not going to yield the returns that a company like Vox can. And that's what we focus on. So we focus on building our competitive advantages. And to the best of our knowledge, we have not won a competitive process yet purchasing a royalty. So we have been the only buyer at the table to buy these royalties. And that means that we're achieving fair value typically for both seller and buyer. Whereas most royalty companies have grown by participating in processes run by investment banks, paying higher price than anybody else. If anyone tells you they win something by doing anything other than paying the highest price, they're not being straightforward with you as as an investor. They're paying the highest price to bring those royalties. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. I think there's a winner's curse that's been around for centuries in terms of shop processes and winning those types of opportunities. It doesn't typically work out well, at least on the average for those buyers. Our belief is we have to be in uncompetitive waters, but to do so, you also have to know what your competition's doing. Fair enough. And in that, you consider yourself the fastest growing royalty company. Why is that? We are. We've acquired more royalties in separate transactions than anybody else over the last two and a half years. That's not our claim to fame. Our claim to fame is the value that we're finding royalties 
And the validation that we've had in our business, and you can see that in our last quarterly results in terms of doubling revenue guidance, where we're finding assets pre-production where we see really good value. And then having those assets perform typically better than we expect and delivering immense value, not just for where we bought the royalty at that point in time, but for the achievements and the developments that they have continuously from that point forward are adding a significant amount of value for our shareholders and they're performing beyond expectations. And that's driving excess returns in our business. How involved are you with the partner companies that are taking on your projects? So we're a little bit different. I know you've had other royalty companies on the show before. We're different in that we don't take on the general administrative expenses of grassroots exploration and then vending those projects out and return gain royalties. What we do is we're a much more advanced phase of royalty acquisition. We believe it's a more efficient business model. I believe if you look at our returns that we're generating on capital invested in our business, that proves out. What we do is we only exclusively buy third-party royalties. So we're looking for typically assets in a much later stage of development or much more significant work done. We're not paying to buy those assets and those land packages and then hoping that we can find a buyer. We're buying a royalty that's held by a third party, so not the mining company that's operating it. And that allows us to look at royalties all over the world. So we can find projects that we like and see if there's royalties over them. A lot of times we're screening for developments on those assets that our mining engineers and our geologists find particular interesting and value accretive. And then we go and we look for the royalty of those projects. So it's a much more late stage. You would call that type of royalty company a project generator. We're not a project generator. We're exclusively a third-party royalty acquisition company. I noticed your team is heavily loaded with mining engineers and geologists. We are, and that's on purpose and it's by design. Despite my former investment banking background, we are not in the business of doing deals for the sake of doing deals. We're in the business of finding value for shareholders. And the best way to do that is have have a, a very technical understanding of what assets you're buying royalties over. And if you can't understand the asset at an asset level, then you're not as informed as you should be. And you can look at a lot of deals that have been done in the space where the asset was not well understood and the risk for the expected return did not line up and it did not work out very well for the royalty companies. We went about building a team that had the right technical chops to understand what we're buying. And they demonstrated, and we've demonstrated that we have a very, I would say, a validated capability in that respect in terms of finding value for shareholders over great assets. You briefly glossed over your background, but I'd like to discuss it with you. You have a background in investment banking and brokered transaction. These are things you don't necessarily like now. You know what to look for and know what to stay away from as you run this company. Yeah. And also a student at Colorado School of Mines. But look, I founded this company to drive better risk-adjusted returns for investors. We started with a $7.5 million investment from a family office that understood what we were going to try and accomplish It was an early stage idea. It was a belief that we could create a niche in the royalty space. But it's also understanding that bankers are serving the sellers. They're not serving the buyers. As much as I do have respect for the industry, and I consider myself a reformed investment banker in some respects, that's not what drives our business. What drives our business is finding and creating value. I always felt as an investment banker, I was hamstrung in that capability and that you are a part of the transactional process and certainly enhance value for your clients but you're not part of the integral value creating process. And that was something that really I felt frustrated with. The risk adjusted returns of most junior miners do not stack up. And I wanted to create a vehicle. I believe more people should have commodity exposure, especially with the inflationary backdrop, especially with the risks that are out there in the economy today. This looks and feels a lot like 2006 to 2008. And that's when you want to be in commodities. So we were built for a time like this 
It was a lot of those experiences as an investment banker helping finance mining companies that ultimately did not deliver the returns that investors would have expected for the risk that they were taking on or risk that they didn't know that they were taking on. And Vox was built for that purpose. So we are a purpose-built company to solve that hole for investors of, I want commodity exposure, but I want it in a sensible risk-adjusted way. And I believe we accomplished that. Do you see a 2008-2009 event coming? You know, I'm not a market prognosticator. One of the things we do in pricing royalties is we take a lesser price than where metals are currently traded. My personal viewpoint, my personal viewpoint is sadly yes. And that's not going to be good for most people on this planet. And so while we're building a business, we don't factor in an expectation for higher metal prices and a 2008 type of implosion. And that implosion was very good consequently for gold prices. What we do is we look and say, our investors should make money no matter what the metal prices do. The metal prices should drop and our investors should still make money. That's how we price our deals. So when you're looking at where to make an investment decision with exposure to commodities, you can buy lottery tickets. That's not how we play our business. We play our business to achieve the best best risk-adjusted returns in what we believe is the best format for exposure to commodities, which is royalties. And we built our entire business model around delivering that for investors. So while I personally do think that there's a very good chance of a 2008 type implosion, and that's sad for almost everybody on this planet, we built a business that if that does happen, we should be unbelievably successful well beyond any expectations. But even if that doesn't happen, we built a business to be very, very successful for our shareholders and creating value. Well, certainly gold production doesn't shut down in these instances, and that's where your company offers the least amount of risk as opposed to exploration and development companies in the sector. So let's talk about cash flow. What have you got and what's coming? We're at a really exciting point in our life cycle as a business. When we went public, we had one production stage asset. That was just May of last year. We're a very unknown company in the space. And I believe we're working on changing that for the benefit of shareholders and potential investors out there as well. But we went public with one production stage asset. We now sit at five production stage assets. We expect to be at 10 production stage assets in the next 12 to 18 months. That's significant growth. And that's what drives revenue growth and cash flow growth. We have turned the corner in terms of operational cash flow positive. We actually announced earnings per share of five cents per share last quarter. That will probably balance out a little bit. And that was just an unbelievably positive quarter for us. And we also sold two royalties that were non-core that we thought could be better valued in a specific royalty company called Electric Royalties. So we're excited about that partnership. But we have built a business model based on delivering revenue returns to our business at a risk-adjusted level that is very attractive for the capital that's been invested. Perfect. What's the share structure of your company? So we have a very tight tip share structure. And for most of your listeners and, and viewers, they're probably accustomed to mining companies doing what's called a reverse split. So they shrink the shares outstanding because they grow shares so fast by highly dilutive um, structures and capital raisings. When we went public, we actually forward split the business. So we started this business in 2013, formally incorporated in 2014, started with about seven and a half million dollars from a family office. We grew it, bootstrapping the business with friends and family money, and essentially did it so successfully that we forward split the stock when we went public. So we have 39.5 million shares outstanding. We have 5 million warrants that strike at 450 per share. So significantly out of the money right now and no debt and plenty of cash to execute transactions and continue to grow our business. Meanwhile, we have positive cash flow. So it's been a very, very successful last 12 to 18 months for Vox. That has not been reflected in our share price. And I think a lot of that has to do with us being a relatively new story, certainly on the street. 
Cantor, Fitzgerald, and Red Cloud have you at a very nice buy rating. Of course, we're making no recommendations on this particular program, but how do you respond to that? Well, I think we've spent a lot of time with those analysts and they know the space very well. And I think they've seen our capabilities and the validation of those capabilities and understand that, to be honest, right now, the assets that we have in the portfolio are deeply undervalued. We trade at about 0.7 times an asset value while our closest peers trade in the twos. So that's you know more than a 3x type of relative valuation that our peers are trading at versus where we're trading at. So that inherently presents a re-rate opportunity. That's not giving credit for what I believe is the validated credibility of our business and finding deep value on a continual basis in the royalty sector. While every other royalty company out there is predominantly paying top dollar for what they're bringing in and winning competitive processes. We also do not have any value or at least no value premium ascribed to what is the second largest holding of hard rock royalties in Australia. The best mining jurisdiction on the planet. We have the second largest holding of hard rock royalties to Franco, Nevada, and we trade at a discount. To me, that doesn't line up with just the true tangible advantage that that's presenting to our business every single day because of that portfolio that we built. So I think their numbers, look, they speak for themselves. I believe we have a lot of room to prove them right. Their price expectations are higher than where we're trading now, but I think we have room to grow beyond that. And we're working hard to bring that and surface that to the market. Well, there's so much to address here. I'm going to leave that for our next interview. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today, Kyle. I look forward to more interviews like this in the future. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Likewise, Ellis. It's been fun and a pleasure. Looking forward to our next opportunity to speak together. I've been speaking with Kyle Floyd, Chairman and CEO of Vox Royalty, trading as VOX on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. on the OTC as VOXCF. For the complete story, head to the company's website, voxroyalty.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Jonathan Weisblatt, the CEO of Rockridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange and RRRLF in the U.S. Rockridge Resources is a publicly traded mineral exploration company focused on the acquisition, exploration, and development of mineral resource properties in Canada, specifically copper and battery metal projects. The company's flagship is the Knife Lake Project, located in Saskatchewan, which is ranked as one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. John, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Ellis. Great to be back. I understand you're about ready to commence your summer-fall drill program at the Knife Lake Copper Project. That's pretty exciting. Super exciting. This is, again, follow-up work to results that we received back in the winter and the spring of 2021, so just a few months ago. It's worth me discussing that from the work that we did in the fall of last year leading up to the drill program, we encountered mineralization in all holes at Gilbert Lake. I credit the exploratory work that we did ahead of time, the preparation, the modern-day exploratory methodologies that we have deployed across Knife Lake. I really believe that that's a great set of tools in order for us to understand what's going on with the geology. So we're getting back up to Knife Lake. We're going to run some exploration activity up there. The work, it's going to consist of helicopter-borne EM. It's a VTM Plus survey, which again, as I just mentioned, is an extremely valuable tool for 
effort identifying VMS style mineralization. Without that, in the old days, you're just really drilling with the best guess, aren't you? Yeah. So the whole thesis behind Rockridge, and one of the reasons why I've joined this company, is because we really are deploying you know modern day exploration methods to uh, these types of deposits in safe jurisdictions like Saskatchewan and in the other properties in Canada. So when you're deploying these types of these exploration tools, you're really increasing your probability of success. And I think we're showing that to the marketplace as we move through the next couple of months. You have what I would call a large land package. How do you expect to drill that out, I guess, over the next five years or so? We're going to fly the VTEM, as I mentioned. We're going to follow that up with some groundwork and we're going to identify the most high probability targets in order for us to increase the chances of new discoveries. You really want to start with the big part of the funnel and you want to narrow it down. So we're going to fly the VTEM, we're going to back it up with some groundwork and we're going to narrow off some of the targets and really key in on some of those really good regional areas outside of the Maiden Knife Lake asset. The metals market really is unpredictable as everything is these days. It's not just the business that we're in. It's pretty much everything. We do not know the future, but copper has held its own. Correct. So we've seen copper trading in a pretty tight range in between four and a quarter per pound and four and a half. We're still trading below the recent all-time highs that we made just a few short months ago in the 480 per pound range. And I think that you can really point to a couple of things. So on, on the supply side, we continue to see very tight supply markets. Some of the largest copper mines on the planet are experiencing some potential labor issues, which contributes to the fear of supply restrictions. But really what's driving price, in, in our opinion, at Rockridge is the demand side. So every time you get some concerns over an increased fluctuation or worries over the global pandemic that we've seen, start to see the copper price react. In addition to that, the big unknown and always one of the big unknowns is the larger consumer of copper as a product, and that's China. We just never know what that country and its participants are doing in the copper market. So big unknown there, big unknown on the pandemic side, and clearly the supply side remains pretty tight. So with all of those things taking into consideration, you put them into the blender, you mix it up, and out comes what we believe is a very productive outlook for copper going forward. And you have to look at the electrification of pretty much everything. So the long-term macro picture for copper has to look good considering those supply and demand issues. Agreed. So more and more electric vehicles, more and more percentage of uh, an electric wheel battery coming from copper and other EV metals. The outlook looks really bright on the demand side. John, I really appreciate the update and I wish you all the luck in this summer fall drill program at the Knife Lake Copper Project. Thanks again for joining me today in the program. It's a pleasure, Ellis. Thank you for having us. I've been speaking with Jonathan Weisblatt, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange and RRRLF in the United States. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Adam Smith, the Vice President of Business Development and Corporate Finance for Oroco Resource Corporation, trading under the symbol OCO on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ORRCF. Oroco, founded in 2006, is a Canadian mineral exploration company with a history of and expertise in the development of resource opportunities in Mexico. Oroco is led by a management team with significant 
experience in exploration, discovery, development, and operations in the mineral sector. The company's focus is on the confirmation and expansion of the historical resource of the Santo Tomas Porfric Copper Project in Sinaloa State, Mexico. Oroco has a controlling interest in over 8,900 hectares of contiguous mineral concession that cover and surround the known core of the Santo Tomas mineralized structure, as well as the potential extensions of the historical resource to the north and south. This controlling interest increases as Oroco funds the additional exploration and development of the project. Adam, welcome to the program. Nice to have you on the air today. Thanks, Alice. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. It's been quite a few years. You and I have been friends and business associates now for about 15 years. I'd like to say that I was there at the beginning, and now you've got quite a story. Let's review it. You certainly were there at the beginning, Alice. You helped us get the word out on the Cerro Prieto gold and silver mine that Oroco drilled, developed, sold, and still receives a royalty on before taking on the project that uh, we're currently focused on, the Santa Tomas Porphyry Copper Deposit. You have a success story right now, but I would like to talk about the road that brought you here today. It's not without some serious bumps. That's right. We acquired the controlling interest in the ability to develop the Santa Tomas Porphyry Copper Deposit through a very different method. We assisted a Mexican family who were the rightful owners of Santa Tomas repatriate that ownership after they had done a business deal that saw them lose control unfairly of Santa Tomas. We were in court battling in a number of jurisdictions. We were successful in all of them, I should say, for almost a decade. And it was only in January of last year that we received the final green light, which was registration by the Mexican Public Bureau of Mines of our ownership of Santa Tomas. How were you able to see this through over 10 years? Many projects in Mexico don't see the light of day because of property disputes, jurisdiction disputes, and companies run out of money to see it through. You never gave up. It was a 10-year-long chess game. We navigated the legal system of the Bahamas, the legal system and the mining concession registration system of Mexico. We had concurrent legal actions ongoing in the state of Arizona. And as the defendants were primarily based in Canada, we had legal representation in Canada as well. So this was a long, long battle to clean up legal title of an asset that had been first discovered in the 1960s and drilled in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. By the mid-1990s, had been established through a pre-feasibility report by one of the industry's leading engineering firms as a very, very large, viable project. And when I say large, put that in context. The mid-1990s study by Bateman Engineering detailed a mine that would produce for almost three decades at a level with revenues at today's copper prices of well over a billion dollars per year. So this is a very, very large asset. It's a company-making asset, and you managed to do this. We can maintain a price which is near $3 Canadian as we speak today, which is about 2 U.S. A variety of factors brought you there. Let's talk about the copper market over the years. The copper market is actually one of the things that motivated us over 10 years ago to take on the task when we were asked by the Rodriguez family to help them repatriate ownership of this asset. I've been exploring for copper since the mid-1990s. I was quite aware of the value of these large porphyry copper deposits, quite aware that they are the tier one assets of the mining industry, the big assets that carry the world's big mining companies across mining cycles and generate, in a lot of cases, the majority of the revenues. I was also aware that the copper story was changing significantly. Copper plays a role in renewable energy and electrification. 
And it was felt 10 years ago that that was going to be an emerging story. And it was also the case that the discovery of new copper deposits was declining. For what we thought was true 10 years ago, the theory that those two things were going to start to become more important factors has today been proven absolutely true and perhaps to a much greater degree than was ever predicted at any time in the last decade. The motivation to go renewable, to decarbonize, and the push by governments and large corporations to do so is stronger today than it ever could have been forecast to be. And the decline of the discovery of new copper assets been in freefall, much more rapid decline than could ever have been envisioned 10 years ago. So what motivated us was first and foremost that we knew this was a big asset. And we knew that the legal path may have taken a lot of work to get clear title in this asset. We knew that the Rodriguez family, well, they were the rightful owners of this asset. And we also knew that the copper story was going to get stronger. But we had no idea that it was going to be as strong as it is today. Copper is going to be the essential element to decarbonize. There is no green revolution without copper. And the pace at which the green revolution is picking up speed is greater today than was ever predicted at any point in the last decade. So your predictions 10, 15 years ago were all about infrastructure needs. It really didn't have a lot to do with clean tech per se. That's right. Copper is an essential element in human economic activity. Our use of copper as a society has increased, for instance, beginning of, of the last century, about 500,000 tons of copper per year were used. To today, it's about 25 million tons of copper annually are used. And that's prior to the real wave of decarbonization and the real wave of demand that's going to come from the Green Revolution. One interesting statistic that I like to cite is that more copper is predicted to be needed in the coming two and a half decades than has been consumed by all of mankind in its industrial history. I'm curious as to what that does for the economy of Mexico in that region. Are we going to see Mexico emerge as a second world, first world country more or less because of a new economic boom that will have to affect that region once everyone starts producing? Good point, Ellis, because Mexico is one of the world's de facto mining leaders. Barry Dolbear, a big mining engineering firm, called Mexico a member of the enduring top five, top five mining nations in the world. It's the number one producer of silver, it's top five lead and zinc, it's top 10 gold and copper, and it's a top producer of a number of other metals as well. One of the real emerging stories in Mexico is it as a copper producer. The fourth or fifth largest copper mine in the world, Buenaventura, is in Mexico. Buenaventura will generate revenues approximately $4.5 billion this year, and it's been in production for over a century. I think those two numbers are quite astounding. But there's a number of other assets in Mexico, copper mines in development. We hope that Santa Tomas becomes one of those as well. That will increase Mexico's ranking as a global copper producer. There's a bright future for Mexico as an emerging copper producer. And these mines exist, as you can imagine, in rural locations in Mexico where economic development will be profound. Some of the shareholders of this company have been with you since the beginning. And there are, of course, many new shareholders. Clearly, with such a large asset, you are not targeted to become a producer on your own. At some point, you've got to turn it over to a major like Kennecott or BHP or somebody. What's the plan, hypothetically, for the next five, 10 years? Well, we have an advantage in that Santa Tomas was drilled extensively, approximately 100 drill holes, 30,000 meters, up to 1994. There were engineering studies, there were metallurgical studies, everything necessary to create a pre-feasibility study. Bateman Engineering did a superb job, published in 1994 a report that established Santa Tomas simply with the exploration work that had done to date as a potential major producer of a very, very large plus billion dollar per year revenue asset. But the CapEx involved in putting a mine of that size in production can appreciate beyond the scope of a junior mining company. 
fortunately for us, there's a very well-trod path. Junior companies developing de-risking assets like this and selling them on to majors in transactions that are very, very profitable to the early investors. But right now, the world's mining giants are facing an unprecedented forecast of surge in demand for copper. Their own asset, in many, many cases, are in decline. These mines have been in production for decades, sometimes generations. There's been a fairly rapid decline in the quality of copper assets and grade being mined over the last few decades. The type of mining companies that have the capability and the capital to put Santa Tomas into production, which would take, we estimate, one and a half to two and a half billion to go into production. Those mining companies have very, very strong balance sheets today. Strong recent metal prices have been very good for those companies. So they've got a circumstance where the rate of discovery of these assets has declined. In many cases, their own producing assets are declined and they can see the end of the mine life. And they know that to feed the world's demand for copper, they're going to have to increase production, not decrease production. So buyers with, with lots of cash in the bank and need to buy assets and relatively few assets out there would suggest that those few junior mining companies that are developing big copper assets will be the subject of acquisitive interest by majors. The history of such transactions has uh, to some metrics by which one can value these assets. And in recent history, the last 18 months or so, those few companies with big copper assets are starting to see historical valuations in the market that far exceed the historical valuations for these. So the future, if I could predict it, would be that the major mining companies are going to start to have to face the fact that they've got declining assets, that the world is going to be consuming vastly larger amounts of copper than at any point ever in history. And they're going to have to use those mountains of cash that their operations are generating to engage in M&A and to acquire assets from junior companies like ourselves. Yet, very favorably for us, the number of such assets available is vanishingly small. A study done in 2018 by the British firm RFC Ambrium suggested that the number of available copper assets, large advanced assets in good locations that are amenable to be put in production, is just five. Compare that against the forecast of copper deficits in the latter part of this decade, where 60, 80, 100 new assets are going to need to go in production to meet demand. So those few companies that are sitting on big assets like Santa Tomas are in a very, very good position. That RFC Ambrian report is available on Oroco's website. You don't at all believe that especially in the junior mining space, that the copper market is overvalued at all, that there's still plenty of upside. I do. I believe that very firmly. The fundamentals behind copper right now are phenomenal. And if we were to remake a very, very famous movie, I think we'd want to use the word copper instead of plastics. The coming decarbonization, adoption of renewable energy, electrification of everything is all dependent on copper. There will be no green revolution without massive amounts of copper. So much so that a number of large financial consultancies in the world, including Goldman Sachs, have said that copper is the new oil. Of course, it's not oil. Oil is energy. Copper is a way to transmit and utilize energy. But their point was that the coming energy transition will be dependent on copper in the way that the last century's energy usage was dependent on oil. Goldman and others, a great many others, suggest that the increase in demand coming in copper this decade will far outpace anything we've seen in the past. The next few decades will see more copper consumed by humankind than has been consumed in all of history. Yet the mining industry is 
on its back feet. They're not prepared for this. And you could argue that that's as a consequence of decisions made by mining companies that are being very conservative in their deployment of capital right now. But you could just as firmly argue that we've seen over the last couple of decades is a very rapid decline in simply the rate of discovery of copper. And to use a well-worn phrase, peak copper may be upon us. Since 1990, there have been approximately a little less than 300 copper deposits discovered. In the last five years, there's been only a single discovery. So the rate of discovery of copper assets, despite increased spending on exploration, would suggest that the world has discovered most of its easily accessible copper. New discoveries are having to go deeper. They're having to go into more difficult jurisdictions. So we're at a very interesting time in history when more copper is going to be consumed than ever before. We have been on a rapid decline in terms of how much copper we're discovering and forecast deficits between production and demand between now and the end of the decade are really quite alarming. And mining companies have been sleepwalking into a situation where these deficits and the resultant rise in copper prices are going to be quite dramatic. So at some point in the next few years, those mining companies are going to start to, I think, see the need and they're going to loosen the purse strings. They're going to get involved in M&A. They're going to position themselves as China has been for the last decade for this coming wave of copper usage and demand. Given all the factors you've laid out during the course of this interview, I would think that you're in no hurry to be taken out. There's still potentially plenty of upside and drilling is ongoing. That's right. Santa Tomas, as I've talked about, was an asset discovered and defined up to the mid-1990s. A legal title dispute kept it from further development, really from the year 2001 until about a year ago. It's an asset that, by all rights, should have been drilled and developed a long time ago, but because of this very difficult title dispute, it has been kept off the market. So it's spring-loaded in a way. It's the Rip Van Winkle of major copper deposits. It went to sleep under a tree 20 years ago and has woken up in an environment in which it is a much, much more valuable asset than it was before. However, there's still tremendous potential at Santa Tomas to be unlocked. We're starting drilling for the first time in 25 years, I guess, in Santa Tomas, just in the coming weeks. The historical drilling was very shallow in nature. It went down no more than 200 or 300 meters. And porphyry copper deposits of this type have the potential to run many hundreds, even well over a thousand meters in depth. One of the first things that Oroco did upon clearing the legal title issues and getting registered ownership by the Mexican government was was to do a high-tech, three-dimensional induced polarization survey. This is a technology that can see underground. It can identify sulfide mineralization, which is the type of mineralization that contains copper in, in a deposit like Santa Tomas. And what that 3DIP program showed us was that the potential to expand Santa Tomas well beyond what was ever discovered historically is tremendous. We see 3DIP signature indicative of sulfide mineralization covering an area three, four, five times that which was discovered in the past. So we've got a very exciting drill program starting in days that will run for the next year or two in a very, very large plus 100,000 meter drill program with deeper holes. The purpose of the program is both to confirm the historical mineralization as well as to expand it. So we'll be drilling through and beyond what was ever drilled before. We'll be drilling to the north, to the south. The IP program showed lateral extensions to the deposit are likely. So we've got a lot of work to do before we think that we want to start to attract acquisitive interest. And in the coming year, every drill hole carries the potential to expand Santa Tomas. 
So it's going to be a very exciting time. As an example, there are two peer companies that started this same type of process in the last year. One of them, their valuation has gone from hundreds of millions to over $2 billion today. The other company, same thing, from hundreds of millions to over a billion. Our current market cap is approximately $400 million U.S. So you can see there's tremendous upside potential here as we both define the historical resource, confirm it, and expand upon it. How are you capitalized for the drilling programs going forward for the next year and a half? Since Oroco resolved the legal title dispute at 10 Mass, we've been very fortunate in that capital was made available by enthusiastic investors. We currently have about 20 million Canadian in the bank. We've got warrants that upon exercise will bring another 15 or 16 million to Oroco, and they're getting exercised at a fairly constant clip. So we have the capital to be able to initiate a very large drill program. We'll start with two or three drills turning in the coming days and expand that program. We're very well capitalized to take the drill program well down the road. And give us an overview of the share structure of the company, please. We have approximately 190 million shares outstanding, trading at approximately 240 US. We trade on the US OTC market under the symbol ORRCF, and we trade in Canada, which is our primary listing on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol OCO. Management has a considerable stake in the company, somewhere over 20%, 25%, if, uh, almost 30%, I guess, if you include uh, closely associated investors. Very, very motivated. I think as the last 10 years of fighting a legal battle demonstrated, company has no debt. Capital continues to come into the company by way of exercise of warrants. Adam, it's been way too long. I'm glad we had a chance to catch up today. I look forward to seeing you somewhere in the world in the near future. Thanks for joining me today in the program. That was, I look forward to seeing you. And when I do see you again, we will likely at least partly have been transported to that location by renewable energy and with the benefit of the copper heavy infrastructure in the planes, trains and automobiles that brought us there. I've been speaking with Adam Smith, the Vice President of Business Development and Corporate Finance for Oroco Resource Corporation, trading under the symbol OCO on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ORRCF. Visit the company's website, orocoresourcecorp.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Sky Harbor Resources is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada, which was ranked as the best mining jurisdiction to work in globally by the Fraser Institute in 2017. The company has been acquiring top-tier exploration projects at attractive valuations culminating in five uranium properties totaling approximately 200,000 hectares throughout the basin. In July 2016, Sky Harbor secured an option from Denison Mines to acquire a 100% interest in the Moore Uranium Project, now the flagship project, which hosts the high-grade Maverick Zone. The company is run by a strong management and geological team who are major shareholders with extensive capital markets experience as well as focused uranium exploration expertise in the basin. Jordan, welcome back to the program. 
Thanks for having me again. You have some really good news with one of your partners, Asincourt Energy. Yeah, so lots to talk about, lots to catch up on. The news release we had out, partner-funded program at our East Preston project, now a joint venture, majority owned by Asincourt Energy. We're a minority interest holder in the project. They just completed a fairly large radiometric geophysical survey, over 2,500 line kilometers. This was the same technique used by Fission in the early days to locate the high-grade boulder field, which led to the triple R deposit discovery. So a low flown radiometric survey, they've generated and found a number of radiometric anomalies, which will be refined into drill targets over the coming weeks and months. And the plan as per the news release is to follow up with a fairly substantial 7,000 meter drill program later this year, early in the new year. So pretty excited with the progress being made at the project and looking forward to a substantial drill program that will be predominantly funded by Asincourt. Again, this is all a part of our prospect generator model business, whereby we bring in partner companies to advance our secondary projects and we get some cash in stock and have the partners fund the majority of the exploration. So it's a great way for us to offer our investors exposure to several simultaneous programs throughout the Athabasca Basin. Well, that's certainly fantastic news. What else have you got going on with any of the partner companies? We announced last week an update and some very high grade sample results from Hook Lake. Our partner company there is ASX listed Valor Resources. As you probably recall, we did the deal with them just under a year ago, whereby they can earn 80% of the Hook Lake project, which is the northern extent of the Falcon Point project. The deal entails them spending three and a half million in exploration expenditures over a three-year period, making just under half a million in cash payments over that same three-year period. And we have a very large equity stake in the company, over 233 million shares of Valor, which has been moving up quite nicely in the last several weeks here, along with the broader uranium market. But the news release just over a week ago was quite significant. They had grab samples, rock chip samples, and float samples that returned very high-grade uranium, upwards of 59% U308, as well as some silver, 500 grams per ton of silver in one of the samples, and some rare earths as well. They had over 5% total rare earth oxide samples that upwards of just over 5% in a few of the samples that they took. So very exciting. This project, as you may recall, we know there's this historical high-grade outcropping massive pitch blend vein. We did a little bit of work there several years ago. We know there's samples that have returned upwards of 67, 68% U308. So it's a very high grade surface showing a bit of an enigma though. We've never, and previous operators have never properly been able to identify the source of that high grade mineralization. So the great thing there is there's lots of blue sky and exploration offset potential going in and finding the source of that high grade mineralization at surface. And uh, as per the news release, they are planning some follow-up work on the back of this sampling program and some geophysics that they've carried out. And then the plan is to go and drill later this year and early in the new year. And again, if they can find the source of that high-grade mineralization, that would likely be a fairly significant high-grade drill discovery. So we're looking forward to them continuing to advance that project. And again, we will ultimately, assuming they earn in the 80%, retain a minority interest in the project, as well as a very large equity holding in the company. All of what you've stated up until this point bodes very, very well for the companies involved. And explain how it may benefit in the broader picture Sky Harbor. It's a great way, as I mentioned, for us to 
get exposure to several programs without having to raise excessive amounts of capital and dilute. It allows us to focus our time, money, and efforts at our flagship Moore Lake project, which we should have some news out on shortly. As I mentioned in previous interviews, we have gone out and conducted a 5,000 meter drill program, 13 drill holes. We're just completing that with assays pending. That should provide news flow over the coming months. We are planning then to get back into the field later this month, early in October to finish up about 2,000 additional meters of drilling. Very pleased with what we were seeing. And as discussed in previous interviews, we are now chasing up high-grade feeder zones in the underlying basement rocks at the 4.7-kilometer-long Maverick Corridor, particular at the East Maverick Zone, where in our last drill program, we announced the longest continuous zones of uranium mineralization discovered at the property to date. We're seeing the tenor of mineralization pick up a bit in the basement rocks. We think we've just scratched the surface to larger, higher grade zones at depth. But we also drilled a few holes on regional targets, including a new target called the Grid 19 target and additional targets on that 4.7 kilometer long corridor. So we're excited and anxious to get final results back and looking forward to providing some news flow into this improving uranium market. The company has surely performed well for shareholders, at least in the last year, year and a half. And I think that trend may be continuing, and you just alluded to it. How would you compare September of 2021 to September of 2020? Well, a lot's happened. Needless to say, we are in a completely different uranium market than we were a year ago. I'll just wrap up by saying, with regards to company-specific news flow, you know, we talked about our partner companies actively and aggressively exploring some of our other projects. We brought in Valor as a partner company just under a year ago. So we have lots of news flow from partner-funded programs, but we're also carrying out one of our largest drill programs at our flagship Moore Lake project. So we'll have continuous news flow from that over the coming months and plans to continue advancing that project, which has generated high-grade drill results for us over the last several years. We're looking to announce a 43101 compliant resource at some point early in the new year. We're looking to build a resource there as the uranium market continues to heat up. With regards to the market itself and the macro picture, we are seeing a notable pickup in interest and sentiment with regards to the uranium equities. And there's a handful of catalysts. The main one over the last several weeks, as I'm sure a lot of your viewers are familiar with, is the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, which over the last several weeks has now purchased almost 5 million pounds of uranium to move the spot price up from the low 30s to today $40 a pound. They've deployed over half of the $300 million at the market offering that they're raising money through. They have to be in the market every day that they're raising money and capital's coming in. They have to deploy that and buy uranium. So it becomes a positive feedback loop. And we're seeing that working tremendously right now with the last several weeks with the spot price moving. And the good news is we're seeing that trickle into the equities and flow over into the equities where investor appetite and interest coming into the space. We're seeing new institutional money, ESG money continue to come into the sector. It's not a crowded sector. You and I have talked about this at length. There aren't that many companies. There aren't that many ways to play uranium. And so money that does come in to the sector that wants investment exposure to uranium has a limited number of options in which they can play and get exposure to that investment thesis. And so we're seeing the mining companies and the junior companies like Sky Harbor have a pretty substantial move higher. Now, I want to emphasize that I still believe 
It is the early, early innings of this bull market. We've been in a long drawn out bear market almost a decade since Fukushima. We're finally coming out of that here in the last 10, 12 months or so. And at $40 uranium, we're still below the average all-in cost of production globally. We're still below the price needed to incentivize new production to come online. You look at most analyst forecasts, long-term price forecasts for the metal, it's about $55 to $60 a pound. As we've seen in previous cycles and bull markets, the price tends to overshoot. There's a number of reasons for that, but there's no reason why we wouldn't see that same thing play out here in this bull market. And focusing on other factors, other tailwinds outside of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, we've had a market rebalancing over the last five years. We've talked about this extensively, but the supply demand fundamentals for this metal continue to be very compelling. We've seen a major supply side response play out over the last five years, production curtailment. We saw the pandemic last year at one point shut down almost what totaled about 50% of global primary mine supply. So there's still these significant risks to the supply side versus a relatively stable demand side. And on the demand side, particularly the last year, we've seen renewed interest from investors. We're seeing this continued rollout of nuclear reactors globally, in particular in places like China and India and other parts of the developing world. The prospect of some of these new nuclear reactors, SMRs, and some of these other advanced nuclear technologies could add fuel to the fire where we see new reactor types being rolled out in North America and Western Europe, adding to the demand. But bottom line is, if we're serious about decarbonization, which I think we are, and you can see that globally with most countries announcing going carbon neutral or decarbonizing their economies by 2040, 2050, 2060, in order to do that, nuclear has to play a pivotal role. And we're seeing countries now commit to expanded nuclear, civilian nuclear programs. I think we'll continue to see that. So the demand side is going to continue to grow. The supply side's been constrained, particularly in the spot market. We've seen a tightening up of the market. We've seen the carry trade unravel here. So the next shoe to drop will be the utility companies having to come in and shore up supply. This move from $30 to $40 a pound is almost entirely due to Sprott and other financial players in the market. But when we see the main end user of the commodity, i.e. utility companies, come back into the market, I think we'll see that now next leg up. So it's an exciting time. It's still early days. And again, just to emphasize the the valuation and where we could go, right now we're looking at a combined total market cap of all publicly traded uranium mining companies sitting around 35 to $40 billion. In the previous cycle, it was over $150 billion. So there's still strong re-rating potential as the uranium price continues to move. And we're excited. We're well positioned at Sky Harbor with portfolio of top tier exploration and early stage development projects in the Athabasca Basin and a lot of news flow coming up and catalysts coming up in the coming months. Jordan, once again, a very astute analysis of the uranium sector. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program and best of luck to you in the coming weeks. Absolutely. A pleasure to be here. Thanks, Ellis. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, president and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. For the Ellis Martin Report and Sky Harbor Resources, I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com. 
I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with David Watkinson, the CEO of AmeriWest Lithium, trading on the CSE as AWLI and in the U.S. on the OTC as AMRWF. AmeriWest Lithium is focused on unlocking value in a world shifting towards green energy solutions that run off lithium-based batteries. The company's mission is to become a leader in exploration and development of world-class lithium and battery metal mining assets. AmeriWest projects include the Deer Musk East Lithium Project in prolific Clayton Valley, Nevada, and the Railroad Lithium Project in Railroad Valley, Nevada. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. If you don't mind, please give us an overview of AmeriWest Lithium. AmeriWest is an exploration company that's recently gotten into the lithium exploration area. So we've acquired two properties through claim staking. One is in Clayton Valley, that area where they're only operating lithium brine actually in North America exists. And then we also acquired a property in Railroad Valley, again, another area that's hot with exploration for lithium. And then, you know, we're obviously looking at other opportunities to grow the company. Our focus right now is acquisition of properties through staking or otherwise, and eventually growing a resource base through the exploration efforts of the company. And then we'll see where we go from there. The first thing that I find very interesting is the interest in the lithium sector right now. I've covered the sector probably on and off for about 10 years. I feel like I know it very well, but there are so many things happening now that were not a factor, let's say, five to 10 years ago. For instance, the interest in lithium at this point, the interest anywhere. And the stock of the company is performing very, very well right now, comparatively to a venture that may have taken place five or 10 years ago. Is that interest entirely based, in your opinion, on what's happening with the green tech and the perception of clean energy globally? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're seeing the shift to electric vehicles with some of the big automakers getting into production of mainstream vehicles essentially that are going to come online in the next decade. There's a lot of other startup companies producing vehicles. And I think the other aspect of it is we need storage capacity from batteries for the grid. If we're going to switch over to solar and wind power and other things, we need to be able to store energy in the grid. We're just seeing all of these things coming together at the same time. The concerns about global warming and the push to transfer our energy away from coal and, and other types of fossil fuels. So we just have a number of things coming together and the technology is improving as far as being able to make batteries and process lithium from different types of deposits, a whole series of things sort of coming together at the same time. The Clayton Valley has been a focal point of exploration and development with regard to lithium for quite some time. The economics of it seem to be there. Tesla is in the area with a gigafactory. There are other concerns there, of course. Environmentally speaking, is everything in place to produce lithium there? Is there enough water in the ground, for instance? There's certainly an issue with water in Nevada. This isn't just specific to Clayton Valley, but there's limited water in the different valleys that's available, and there's water rights that have been acquired over the years. In some cases, water rights have been over-allocated in some of the valleys. So water rights is certainly going to affect any company working in Nevada, including us. So Abermarl, for example, in the Clayton Valley has water rights that they have tied up for their operation. They're the only operating uh, lithium brine mine in North America. And over the years, they essentially tied up the majority of the water rights in the valley. So it makes it difficult for other companies maybe to acquire water rights if they found a deposit that they wanted to develop. But at the same time, Abermarl is being pushed to look at other processing technologies 
strategy to reduce their water usage because they use evaporation ponds. So they pump lithium brine out of the ground, essentially, and put it into evaporation ponds. And it sits out there for a number of months to concentrate the lithium before they run it through a processing plant. So they're getting pushed to reduce their water usage, not just in Nevada, but essentially around the world. So this is also coming out of the green evolution and companies trying to do a better job of how they use water and what sort of carbon emissions they make. It's all part of the social contract that companies have in order to improve their environmental posture in the world. So if I can extrapolate this for a minute, what you're saying is what couldn't be done in the Clayton Valley five years ago possibly may be able to be accomplished now or in the coming years with new technology that's compliant with environmental social governance. Yeah, I think if Abermarl's got commitments to reduce their water usage, if you read their public information, that's their goal. So, for example, if they reduce their water usage by 20%, that would free up potentially water rights in the valley. In Nevada, it's kind of a use them or lose them type of situation, right? If you don't use your water rights, you eventually will lose them. So I do think in the future, it's possible that water rights will free up in the valley. The other thing is, we're not just looking at brine deposits in Clayton Valley. More recent exploration is looking at sedimentary deposits that are on the edges of the valley. So the original exploration a lot of companies were doing for brine deposits, that was the first focus. Now they're looking at the sedimentary rock that hosts lithium-rich mudstones and claystones that are more on the edge of the valley. So our property is located where we have potential for both of those types of deposits. So we'd essentially found something in the mudstones and claystones that would be a different type of processing than a traditional lithium brine. What part of the process are you involved in right now? We just essentially have acquired the properties. And in Clayton Valley, we've started some initial exploration work that consists of soil and rock chip sampling on surface. And we're also doing geophysical studies to determine where the bedrock is in the valley and to look at where the water table would be. Potentially, there's perch water tables and other sedimentary layers that are in there. So our hope is this initial exploration work will ultimately give us a better understanding of the type of deposit we have, both potential for the brine and the sedimentary areas. And then also then we would look at doing drilling subsequent to that to start to determine whether there's a potential lithium ore body that could be developed in the future. It amazes me that a company can do so well with regard to a share price being where it's at in your market cap without a 43101 resource yet. You'll get that. You will have that. But the performance for the space is really, in my opinion, phenomenal at this time. Do you think that's overblown or is there so much upside that expectations are just going to remain high? No, I don't think it's overblown. I mean, I think people are looking at the locations where we've located our properties. They're adjacent to known properties that have minerals resources defined on them. Clayton Valley, you certainly have Abermarl that's been there and producing, but you have a half dozen other companies that have acquired large claim blocks and have been developing resources. So under today's advancing public companies, they produce technical reports that are public information. So we often can see the exploration that's being done by properties adjacent to us. There's no guarantee that because we're adjacent to a property with an existing resource, we'll find one on our property, but certainly it improves the potential for discovery if you're in the right real estate. It seems like you are in the right neighborhood and that is extremely important location there in Nevada and 
and you can work year-round there, can't you? You can work year-round, so you know that's another advantage of being there. Uh, you certainly have good access to the properties. You know, there's roads that are in the vicinity and historic exploration roads on the properties that give you good access. And obviously, you don't have a lot of vegetation or other things in these playas, so you have good access to do sampling and other things. It's one of the advantages of working in Nevada. Tell us about the team. We're putting together a team right now, and we have been over the past couple of months of what I would call some very good experienced people, both on the corporate side. Myself, I'm a mining engineer and have worked in Nevada for a number of years in exploration. So my background is project development. So being able to take projects from grassroots exploration all the way through into production. I'm sort of leading the team. Our COO, Glenn Colick, has a background on the investment side and he's looking after more of the administrative side. I'm looking after more of the technical side on the exploration and development of the projects. And we put together a group of geologists. We have some advisors with over 40 years of experience of working in Nevada and working in lithium that we're bringing into the team. Plus, we're also trying to get some younger blood in. We just have a contract with a young geologist that we retain that's in Nevada that has a master's and did quite a bit of work on lithium in his career early on. So we're trying to get a mix of young and senior guys that we can use to advance projects. We think we've put a good team together. Our focus right now is more discovery and advancement of resources. As we move the company along and we get resources, we'll end up bringing in some other members into the team that may be involved, for instance, on the processing side and the science side for developing a lithium property. So you're seeing a lot of technology being developed and you're seeing patents being brought in place for processing now as companies are looking to move their properties into production. So we're following all that as we watch the lithium space expand and more companies get into it. David, well, I really appreciate you joining me today. I look forward to updated conversations in the future. Well, I appreciate you having us. I think it's an exciting time for the company. We're just getting started. I think you're going to see a lot of news coming out of the company in the near future. And I hope your audience will watch what we're doing and follow us. Thanks for your time. Great. Thank you. I've been speaking with David Watkinson, the CEO of AmeriWest Lithium, trading on the CSE as AWLI and in the U.S. on the OTC as AMRWF. Go to the company's website, AmeriWest lithium.com. For AmeriWest Lithium and the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, we'll take a trip to Jakarta, Indonesia, a large and beautiful country of over 275 million people with exotically tropical pastoral and urban landscapes. Jakarta is the home of Panita Capital Advisors and our guest, co-founder, Edward Gustily. Mr. Gustily has over $30 billion of emerging market experience involving infrastructure and the digital economy, capital restructurings, and business turnaround, and has advised on $7.5 billion of securitization issues, including the successful launch of Indonesia's maiden 30-year global bond. He has played a pivotal role in building Indonesia's sovereign wealth fund and its infrastructure finance agencies, and is the chief architect of the Indonesia Green Investment Fund, launched by Indonesia's president for supporting the country's low-carbon growth plan. Edward's extensive international career is primarily focused on the emerging markets. He has co-founded several startups and private equity partnerships and served as the managing director of Gold Hill 
Brazil International, where he was responsible for growing its corporate finance and restructuring practice from $2 million to over $4.2 billion. In our interest in the global energy metal space and its economics, we've reached out to Edward and are pleased to have him join us today on the Ellis Martin Report. Edward, welcome to the program. Nice to have you on the air. Thank you for inviting me, Ellis. Good to see you. It's been about two and a half years since we've seen each other. We were at the Minds of Money conference in Hong Kong in April of 2019. And uh, I was planning on going last year. Of course, that didn't work out for pretty much anybody. But the environment, the tone, the discussion has changed in the last two and a half years. And it's been pretty dramatic. What has changed in your part of the world, in your opinion? That's a great question. And it's good to see. And a lot has changed since 2019. There's a number of factors, and I think the elephant in the room is just this, if you will, engineered bifurcation from Cold War into spheres of democracy versus totalitarianism. That is the China or the U.S. play and the influence that it has over investor sediment, plus whatever themes, priorities, and actions investors, particularly in the resource industry, what you can be doing in this type of context. Are you being forced to pick a side or is it best to be above the fray, continue on with your business? and investment plans and adjust according to what is real risk versus perceived risk versus engineered risk. And I think that's what's changed since 2019. If you remember, it kind of started after we left the conference, the escalation of the Hong Kong protests. That then went into a trade war that was being put into place. And by November of 2019, we start getting into, if you will, the first iterations of COVID being released in the sense of the media, what was taking place at the end of December around the holiday time. And since then, it's been everyone trying to adjust what is it they can do given the context of perceived and real risks that were not expected. So from having said that, what we are today, one of the benefits of Southeast Asia, and I've been here almost 30 years now covering the 10 economies that make up the associated economies of Southeast Asia known as ASEAN, is that you still have 650 million population, half below the age of 30, very robust, very vibrant, economic growth still trending above all other regional economy. And there is this feeling that we've got to get on with business. Yes, we have to address the calamity and the COVID situation, but the sooner we can get moving forward in vaccinating people, hopefully we'll achieve that herd immunity magic number that all countries are looking for and businesses begin to open up. That's one sentiment. Again, the other sentiment, which I opened with you about, is this whole notion of does this part of the world want China as a big brother or does it want the United States as its good brother? And there is two different approaches right now that they are being presented with. I think at the end of the day, what most investors and business owners want in this part of the world is for China to be a good brother. But how it gets there or if it wants to get there is entirely an open question. Where the U.S. is re-engaging itself is attempting to come in and be the thoughtful good brother, but it's a matter of words and actions and getting those aligned. And so that re-engagement, if you remember during the Obama administration, we were begin to pivot toward Asia, away from the Middle East, away from fossil fuel dependence on that part of the world, and looking to engage Asia because that will be the growth story. Certainly in Indonesia's case, a number of natural 
resources and that natural endowment that it represents, how can we help add our financial and intellectual capital in building out that industrial growth strategy that it represents? And we are now at that nexus of what we feel is moving that way. But again, under this both real and perceived tension building, it's kind of jockeying for position, no different than during the Cold War, of how the Soviets and the U.S. jockeyed for position in other resource-rich countries around the world. And so am I hopeful that we're going to be on the right trajectory or trend? Yes, I am, because I think at the end of the day, where the U.S. has been helpful over the last 50 years is building democratically oriented economies in this part of the world. And that demonstration of its soft power, of its intellectual power, of its technological power, if you sum that all up, there's a lot going for economies here, aligning their interests with the West, but also being able able to play the West against China to see what they can get for themselves. So we're back to that. If you remember during the Cold War, there's communists in my country, send me aid. And then the leader also going to the Soviets and saying, there's Western influences in my country, send me aid. And what kind of deal can I get out of the whole situation? I think some of that is taking place right now, but in a more sophisticated way. I think the other aspect that has investors nervous is the acceleration of the digital economy and certainly the excessive printing of money that has been a a response to COVID. And does that excessive monetary policy expansion justify a response to COVID? Or is there another element that we are not aware of that adds additional risk to our own local economies and our own local currencies? Simply because most of these countries are still holding dollars as the reserve. 85%, I believe, of transactions in the world are dollar-based. And they're There is a general uncertainty and risk of giving up your sovereign monetary policy to people in Washington, D.C., that we just don't know where this is going to go. And again, it comes down to where do we fit in all of that? Do we go along with these experiments in digital currencies? Do we hunker down and begin to focus more on real assets that if you dropped it on your foot, it's going to hurt, therefore it has value? If Do we look at the value chain of what goes into a final end product? And does that give our economy and our sovereign nation more power at the bargaining table when it comes to elements and policies that we cannot control. So I think that's kind of where the mindset is. I don't see that any different, if you will, to perhaps other parts of the world and what they're focusing on. But certainly as an investor in Asia for like almost 30 years now and looking at these various plays and trying to make sense of it and talking to others, including our investors and our clients, of those things that can change in a heartbeat. And at the end of the day, how are you mitigating your downside risk to know that this is what I have to lose, but I can still survive? Well, you've covered a lot of ground there, and I have many questions. I guess my first question is going to be, with Chinese state-owned companies operating in Indonesia, as they are in many places in the world, does that affect the calculus with regard to, let's say, the Indonesian government or investment risk or picking a side or sitting on the fence? It does. It does. And I'll give you an example. State-owned companies from China have already made a commitment to increase their collective investment to about $21 billion in the value-add of just the nickel industry. 
that's $21 billion now until 2024, so within three years. And then by the next decade, they're going to increase that to around $35 billion. We have not seen any investment of that size or scope coming from the United States other than the existing mining operations of Freeport-McMoran in Papua, the world's largest gold and copper mine, which has been there now over 50 years. So how do you displace that? Because when the Chinese companies come in, it's China incorporated under the state-owned enterprise flag. They will build the port. They will build the smelter. They will build the logistics. They will do the mining. They will bring 10,000 Chinese workers into that operation and becomes a little sovereign nation in and of itself in these various jurisdictions. And that's a challenge because at the end of the day, a country like Indonesia still needs to import financial intellectual capital to link its natural resource policies that it's been revising to align with its industrial policies of moving downstream into the value-added chain. Indonesia wants to be the world's leader in EV battery production based on a thoughtful downstream evolution of its nickel mining industry. So, for example, at the beginning of the year, Indonesia banned the exportation of raw materials and nickel. It is encouraging companies like Tesla set up shop and focus on the value-add production of nickel into EV production. Other companies that are focused on that include the Koreans, Hyundai and LG. Hyundai has made a commitment of $9 billion to set up EV production. So you're getting a number of the world-class names and players focusing on Indonesia for the very first time, where in fact, China, just like its movement into Myanmar or Burma over the last 20 years, have already placed their flags in key resource jurisdictions and can do the same thing now of build out and downstream strategy. So how do you offset that? In Indonesia's case, it's always had a mercantilist diplomatic policy with countries. What is in the best interests of Indonesia and not be aligned with any power structure that would compromise its ability to make independent decisions? And so Indonesia has a history of that. It was one of the founders of the non-aligned movement back in the 50s, which took about 106 countries which were not aligned with the West or the Soviet Union and said, we have our own movement, and that is to be impartial and independent from these two superpowers. Indonesia now, in present day, is taking the same approach with China and the U.S., demonstrating that it wants to be impartial and independent and take a more mercantilist approach of trade and investment. And it is beginning to be tested on that, simply because of China's commitment so far of several billions of dollars of underwriting the smelter plants so that these minerals can be moved downstream into finished product. We have not seen any of those commitments from the West or from the U.S. other than perhaps Total and a few European interests taking a look at those initiatives. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out at the end of the day. I don't see a Tesla coming in and taking over a nickel or smelter plant, but I do see them setting up production, which would feed into Indonesia's industrial policy of getting away from selling off the family silverware and actually making finished product. And the U.S. has a lot to offer in sense the financial and intellectual capital necessary to achieve those ends.
Well, that has to be done privately. It can't be a government mandate. That's just not going to happen. So what do you see happening in that area? Any potential for uh, U.S. funds coming in? There is potential. There is interest from the newly created Development Finance Corporation out of Washington, which is an amalgamation of all of our aid and investment funding into developing and emerging markets. If you remember, Overseas Private Investment Corporation was the first iteration that went back in the 60s. And we've taken that and various funding agencies from the various departments of Treasury, State Department, USAID, and the likes, and put it under this new organization called the U.S. Development Finance Corporation. Its aim is to basically compete with China and its Belt Road Initiative. And so they call it the Blue Dot Program. And basically what that means is they want to be able to start planting flags where China has spent its resources in planning its flag and to go head to head. And the differentiation in that is that I think you'll begin to see the U.S. talking up environmental social governance issues, ESG, as a denominator of how it invests and how it will contribute to the development of ESG principles from the U.S. Whether that flies, we're not sure, but it is catching up, if you will, from, I would say, not necessarily neglect, but just a refocus of interest now away from the funding that went into China over the last 30 years is being redirected to now these 10 economies of Southeast Asia, 650 million people, and how they are going to benefit from the industrialization or the leaving of businesses and factories from China seeking new pastures into these economies. And I think the U.S. is doing its part through DFC to kind of fly that flag. And then DFC's role is very similar to what IFC of the World Bank does, is to look at taking that first risk or at least running whatever interference or bottlenecks that could be thrown up in a transaction where they're able to catalyze greater investment from the private sector into these deals and these opportunities. So we'll see how that plays out. But again, a lot of that implementation has been slowed simply because of COVID. Transactions have been delayed because the restrictions of travel have not allowed for in-field due diligence, scoping opportunities, or even meeting face-to-face. There's only so much you can do on video and Zoom calls, and the whole verification and validation still needs to take place. So we have this in competition with Belt and Road, which actually the Chinese are effectively controlling the ports and controlling the offtake and controlling the supply of nickel in what I've heard you say, the largest reserve of nickel in the world is right there in Indonesia. That's correct. Indonesia represents 25% of the world's reserves of nickel. And just to give you an example of how important it will be to Indonesia's build out of its industrial policy, the EV market will need 1.3 million tons of nickel per year within the next nine years by 2030, compared to right now, 600,000 tons. So you're seeing a little over a doubling of the nickel needed for just the EV market. And China is right now well positioned to dominate the production and delivery of that nickel. Again, planning flags of One Belt, One Road initiative. But they also are having setbacks. And I'll give you an example. In the infrastructure space, China and Japan competed head to head to build fast rail project linking the two largest cities, Jakarta and Doom, which on a normal day, you can 
transverse anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours, depending on traffic. Well, that high-speed rail project was to link these two in a matter of less than, I think, 40 minutes. And again, two very large metropoles. To give you an idea how big Greater Jakarta is now, Greater Jakarta metropolitan area is 32 million population. That's only second to Greater Tokyo, which is 36 million. And then when you look at Bandung, you're looking at Greater Bandung now approaching 10. So you're looking at just in the province of West Java, 52 million people. And that's significant. So a high-speed rail makes sense. But back to the story of this competition, the Japanese had spent considerable time, effort, and resources to map this out and afford a credible high-speed rail program only to be underbidded by China. And the challenge they have right now is that by the government awarding China this bid, there's a lot of challenges with the project. Number one, cost overruns approaching $6 billion that no one had anticipated simply because the front-end engineering and design was fast-tracked without real scope into determining seismic activity and soil conditions for building a high-speed rail. So those issues were never really ferreted out by China. Call it a lack of experience, but also call it the fact that they were all about getting a first flag planted and getting the project and then working through those issues. Well, that threw up a number of red flags. And now we have a U.S. engineering firm that's been called in by the Indonesian government to reevaluate this project, to determine who is going to come up with the additional billion dollars necessary. And the Indonesian government says, this is not our issue. This is China's issue. So there's a lot of, if you will, diplomatic back and forth efforts to try to smooth the edges on this. But Indonesia is pretty firm that this is your mistake. This is not our mistake. So these are test cases to find out how countries are able to push back on some of the initiatives that China has made under the the Belt and Road exercise of planting themselves in key ports and debting countries who should have known that they were going to be able to repay the debt and then using that as as a means to continue to have leverage over these governments. Cheap money is very attractive, isn't it? It is. My days of debt restructuring during the 98 financial crisis, when I was called in by, at that time, President Habibi, who took over for the disposed President Soharto, was very revealing on how the Japanese played the game. And that was provide 1% interest loans over 50 years, basically subsidized lending. But the quid pro quo was, you're going to use our contractors. And the contractors were then able to ensure that they got full value for their contracts. And that really became economic policy for the development of Japan. I mean, at the end of the day, you're building something for the recipient country, but then it's the taxpayers who have to pay that bill back to Japan. And when we had to unravel and restructure all of this debt, that was part of the first wave of infrastructure build led by Japan Incorporated, as I call it. It was very revealing of how that policy and strategy played out. Now we are in present day, modern day, 21st century, and China is taking the same approach. The difference, though, is that Japan was able to, at the end of the day, adjust and use its soft power to do the right thing. We're not seeing that yet from China. And I think that's just because you're not dealing with a democracy. You're dealing with a handful of people calling the shots in Beijing and their ability to project power is more meaningful simply because that's the cultural dynamic that they've grown up with versus showing any accommodation. One of the sayings in Indonesia is when a Chinese investor or the Chinese government says, we want to do a win-win deal, 
they interpret that meaning that China wants to win twice. Is Japan out of the picture now with regard to the transportation infrastructure? It's not because there's another high-speed rail linking Jakarta with Surabaya, which is the second or third largest city on Java Island. And so Japan has been more or less given that project as a mea gulpa for allowing China to have the first high-speed rail linking Jakarta to Bandung. So it's kind of the quid pro quo. Japan has a lot of soft power, has a lot of goodwill, and the U.S. policy has been, along with the five eyes of post-war too, is to further engage the democracies in Asia to take a more meaningful role in Indonesia's development. So we're talking Japan, Korea, Australia, picking up its game in that process so that these countries are acting as good brothers to Indonesia and not the kind of heavy-handed big brother approach that China seems to be taking where it does invest. It would seem that there is quite an opportunity now for countries like Australia, even the UK, the United States, Japan, to really step in, a syndicate within ASEAN, so to speak, to pick up that mantle and actively compete with the Chinese. So it becomes a more competitive environment. It does. Here's the benefit, though, of those who have experience in dealing with China. They realize that China only respects power. Any weakness is a vulnerability that China will exploit in its dealings. So how do you demonstrate your power without upsetting China or embarrassing them, if you will, in the public sphere? And I think there's a lot to be learned from how Indonesia deals with China. Indonesia will never provoke or disparage China. What Indonesia does, though, is it, it exerts its sovereign rights where China does come in and misbehave. I'll give you an example. The adventurism in the South China Sea with so-called Chinese fishing vessels encroaching on Indonesian waters backed by China's Coast Guard. Well, this happened a few years ago. When that first happened, the Minister of Maritime and Fisheries, a lady named Susie, who grew up in the fishing business and has seen illegal fishing in Indonesia for the longest period of time, she basically took those fishing vessels in and saying, you're in Indonesian waters without authorization, you have illegally come into our territory and set them on fire. That's how you send a strong message. Now, of course, Chinese embassy and everyone else highly protested this. But the fact of the matter is these fishing vessels were protected by China Coast Guard inside Indonesian waters, and they gave them every means to leave that territory, and they didn't. So you demonstrate we're not going to tolerate this. Well, since then, we've had no further encroachments. At the same time, though, Indonesia has seen that it has vulnerabilities to China's adventurism and provoking it's, quote, believes it's red line territory into Indonesia waters. And Indonesia has never had a dispute with China. There's other countries that have claims over the South China Sea, Vietnam, Malaysia, the Philippines. Indonesia was never a part of that. So this encroachment and the response by Indonesia sent a very strong signal to China, we won't tolerate this. The same will go for anything else that we believe that if China begins to misbehave, the Indonesians will ensure that their sovereign rights are protected. And 
and they will do it with logical treaty-based arguments. So the rest of Southeast Asia looks at Indonesia and saying, okay, well, one of our members is standing up to this. Another case in point is Vietnam. Vietnam has not been so lucky in standing up, and it essentially put forward a plan with the United States to help in its sovereign protection of its territories. The strategic partnership that you has with the Philippines is an attack on the Philippines is an attack on the U.S. So there's a lot going on in the South China Sea, and that's because of the resources it represents, because of the trading routes it represents, and many are looking at Indonesia on how it is getting China to behave in this format. And I go back to the saying, Indonesia would prefer China to be a good brother and not act like a big brother. And so again, this creates an opportunity for U.S. and other democracies in the region to play that good brother role, which we begin to see. And again, providing the financial intellectual capital to help build out a more robust economy that can fend off any sort of allegiance or dependence to an economy the size of China. Indonesia is a primarily Muslim country. Clearly, the events in Shenzhen what was formerly called East Turkestan, have not factored into any of what we've discussed here in this segment. Or maybe they have. I don't know. It seems that money talks and nobody walks. So you bring up something which has also been playing on my mind as well. The stance of Indonesia has been with China and the Uyghurs is that they want transparency like everyone else in what's taking place. But there hasn't been protests on the street of Muslim Brotherhood standing up for one another on this issue. There were protests with regards to how Israel was treating the Palestinians. And that always seems to kind of be the flashpoint in protests. But anything to do with Muslim treatment in China has kind of fallen on deaf ears or silence or, as I would say, suppression of anyone getting out on the streets. Now, one of the things of Indonesia is that for your listeners, it's the largest democracy after the United States. And most do not know that. It also has the largest Muslim population in the world. And most don't know that either. So how do the two work hand in hand? Well, they do work hand in hand. 85% of the population follows the Islamic faith. The other 15% is a combination of Christianity, Buddhist, Hindu, and Confucius thought. So in a democracy, you're allowed to have that. And in my estimation, it works fairly well. Where you get these flare-ups is usually using religion as an instrument of manipulation in the standpoint of what is it that we're trying to affect. If you look at all parts of Indonesia where we have a flare-up of Islamic radicalism, they tend to be where the resources are. And to me, this is a proxy of keeping people out of those areas. What we've seen in the past is we've seen flare-ups in parts of Indonesia, radical Islam is taking hold. Well, how did that flare up in these remote areas? And again, I see it as a proxy of don't come to this part. We are mining illegally or we're taking resources or we want to scare what certain vested interests. In other aspects, what we've seen is that Indonesia can be very peaceful and resolve these issues quite easily. So personally, I've never played into or took this radicalization of Indonesia as what 
the majority of people feel. Most will see this as nothing more than a political tool to use to serve whosoever vested interests are there. And we've seen that in other parts of the world as well. So Indonesia will, I think, continue on. It will demonstrate that it can resolve these issues when they do flare up. But the real question is, what's the motive? Who's behind it? What is it they have to gain from this exercise? You've highlighted something in your dissertation that has really mirrored concern about entities, let's call them Canadian, American, European entities, thinking about investing or optioning properties in Indonesia that are in these sensitive zones, whether the risk is through the government, localized government there, or through radical Islamic concerns that you alluded to. Is this still an issue or have we moved past that? Because I've been told in the past that while Indonesia is a beautiful country with wonderful people, and I can attest to that myself, it's still risky potentially to take on a project there. Your view. So what the government has been moving forward with in these last several years is to acknowledge that there are risks associated, particularly with resource-based mining and industries here. And they acknowledge that there's a combination of factors that go into that. And again, it's the vested interests who either want to play the gatekeeper or the rent seeker, if you will, role of those resources being extracted. Now, fast forward to today, what the government has done is saying, we understand that that's not going to go away, but at least we can code it in such a way to de-risk these projects to meet the requirements and fiduciary roles that investors have to participate in this because it goes back to what I said earlier, Indonesia still has to rely on importing financial and intellectual capital. And so in the resource sector, these last several years, what we've seen is the major players in the world recognizing that and that they can't take, if you will, a carpetbagger approach of assembling license and permits, doing some initial exploration, and then trying to flip that through lawyers in Singapore to the next guy who wants to invest in it. 10 years ago, there were 13,000 exploration and mining permits issued in Indonesia. And they were being issued as a cottage industry of how to make money and flip these licenses and permits. The government realized that it was not only diluting, but polluting the environment because no one could make sense of who owned what. And so there's been this movement to move that localization of issuances of permits and licensing and putting back into the central government hand. And so 13,000 of these permits and licenses have gone down to maybe 100. And the categorization of that is that the requirements to fulfill is are you well capitalized? What is your operational plan? What is your expertise in development of mining interests? Export bans on natural resources, focus on investing in smelters and downstream incentives to build out these industries. And so it's gone from, again, selling off the family silverware and how investors and traders were interested in that to a more robust industrial policy of getting true operators, true investors engaged in this space that goes beyond a five-year development plan, that we are looking at addressing the needs of investors and operators saying, I need a 30-year concession and that needs to be locked tight. And there can't be, let's say in year nine, a change in government policy or regulations simply because you think I'm making too much money. There has to be dispensation if there is any changes in that. 
And so that's taken place. More interest now in the mining and downstream sector where the state-owned enterprises owned by Indonesia has stepped up and local Indonesian companies they have stepped into taking over those mining interests and doing a credible job of scaling the required intellectual and financial capital needed to build it out. I'm hopeful that that will begin to attract more capital in the downstream, which is really needed. So I'm guessing that instead or in place of thousands potentially of junior mining companies involved in so-called exploration and development, and they may never get there, we're replacing that with end users. The end users are those entities that are involving themselves in early stage projects, which they can quickly bring to production and offtake because that's been their experience. Ellis, that's an excellent point, and that's how we view it. It's a demand-driven economy, if you will. And so part of that, too, goes back to the comment I made of this now promotion of ESG, environmental social governance for institutional investors. In the past, we called that CSR, corporate social responsibility. But in today's age, it's a new acronym, a new meme, if you will, for institutional investors to basically take over the role of what other sovereign nations were doing. And that is, if you're making an investment into nickel, what's the traceability of that nickel? Where did it come from? Did it use fair trade and labor or was it slave labor, if you will? If I'm an Apple product and I'm Tim Cook, I want to make sure that anything that goes into my Apple product was used with fair labor and fair trade principles. How do I trace and track that, right? So that becomes a standard now and using digitalization, blockchain, and the ability to trace that we would not imagine several years ago. Now it's here. And so that also goes back to your previous question, is Indonesia open for business to attract investment in the natural resource mining and development sector? It is, but it is going to be the major players. I don't see, in my personal view right now, a role for juniors coming into this market, given the scope of what is needed in long-term capital commitment, and only a few can do that. But there are manufacturing deals to be done then. There are end-user deals to be done. So that could be where the deal flow is. And you, with your experience going back over 30 years on and off with the Indonesian government, you could be one of the friendly gatekeepers, could you not? I've always tried to take a friendly approach, and I don't like to be viewed as a gatekeeper, but I can certainly add value to understanding, served in four presidential administrations and cabinets here, as to what the mindset and the thinking is. So how do you unmask these risks, determine is it real or perceived? And that's the big challenge. If you're a major player like a Newmont or a Freeport, a McMoran, there's nothing going to be my sharing that you don't already know. But if you're an Apple or a Tesla or a Hyundai or someone linked to them who has been brought in to help build out this industrial policy strategy that makes sense to you because it's the end product that you're looking for and a degree of control over that vertical integration simply because you want to mitigate the reputational risk associated with illegal mining or child labor or any other of these various nefarious policies that they're beginning to be exposed to and do run reputational risk, then I think you have a seat at the table to determine where is that going to go and 
do we have true visibility and traceability of our commitment in the entire value chain from the mining site to the end product? And I think Indonesian is open to that because at the end of the day, they want that end product. They want that industrialization to take place. And for that to take place, get an endorsement from a Tim Cook or an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos is going to be required. And I'll give you an example. Jeff Bezos and Amazon Web Services has made a commitment to West Java. As I mentioned, West Java of the Java Island is one of the provinces. It represents 58% of Indonesia's GDP, so industrialization is already here, but they also want to attract more of the digitalization and value-add industries. AWS and the West Java government have signed an agreement to build $2.8 billion of data centers for AWS and West Java. This requires 300 megawatts of uninterrupted power for these data centers. And Jeff Bezos has said, I want all of my AWS data centers to be carbon neutral, not by 2030, but by 2025. Now, what's that going to require? Well, Indonesia has renewable energy. It has geothermal, it has hydro. But to build a 300 megawatt power plant running on renewable energy is going to take 600 hectares of land just for solar power. And solar power is not an uninterruptible power. You still need battery storage. Where is that battery storage going to come from? If you run on geothermal, it can be done, but geothermal is risky and it requires a huge capex front-end investment and a, usually a five-year build-out strategy from the time you source the geothermal to the time it reaches the plant. So these are some real challenges. But what's good about those challenges, it then fits into the narrative of, as you've mentioned, Ellis, end product. The end product is data. How are we going to accommodate AWS and its $2.8 billion data centers? Well, let's start with that and then go back upstream all the way to nickel. And that value chain and the incremental aspects of what institutional capital will be needed along that way is going to be dictated by ESG standards. Not because I want them or anyone else, it's just that that is what's going to take place. And who is going to be in the best possible position to act as a good brother to guide that process? And I think the West and the U.S. has a role to play in that. And I think that's where we're going in regards to how do we plant a flag and do it in a thoughtful and proper way so that Indonesia, being the largest democracy of the U.S., begins to demonstrate how their economy is going to function without having any dependence on a China or any other economy that requires a degree of competition or offset. So what's needed? Marketing on behalf of Indonesia? Combination of things. One is that Indonesia is so large of a country that it really focuses much of its attention on keeping itself together. Its ability to reach out and convey and communicate what its policies are, it can be doing a better job. It is investment grade, so it's on everyone's radar when it comes to its sovereign bonds and institutional investor mix. That's not the issue. The issue is, is how do we as investors participate in these opportunities? How are they being marketed to the rest of the world to be engaged with? And what we've seen is that it's still a very controlled way of messaging that reflects and represents Indonesia's not wanting to oversell itself simply because that's happened in the past and what it's attracted 
is kind of the mercantilist trader mentality, get in quick and exit quick. And what it's looking for is long-term thoughtful capital that it's still required to import and having those discussions with the brand names that we've mentioned to give that necessary endorsement of comfort and confirmation to other investors that they should be participating as well. You get an Apple or a Tesla or a Hyundai or an LG planting their flags and saying, we're committing $9 billion to a new production facility or we're building out EV batteries or the likes. That's the sort of endorsement you want. If you have an AWS committing to almost $3 billion of data centers, that kind of offsets looking at an Alibaba or a Huawei coming in. Who's going to control that ecosystem and bring in the other value chain participants in that mix that adhere to some of the investor value principles that Indonesia wants to align itself with and not get in a tit for tat, you're us versus them type of political global geo play. And so the more you have commercial endorsements, the more you have private sector endorsements as to what Indonesia wants to do with the build out of its industrial policy of taking much of the manufacturing that is leaving China and looking for other pastures and putting that into your investor mix and courting it, then I think Indonesia is taking the right approach, but it could certainly be doing more with regards to industrial policy. It's certainly doing more in trying to attract global tourism and travel because it sees it as a major building block within its economy. And I tell people in the States, think of Indonesia as the Caribbean is to the United States. It's where people go and have an enjoyable experience, spend money, travel, see the flora and fauna that Indonesia has to offer. And Indonesia is doing its part to cater to the travelers and the ecotourism that can come from that just in Asia Pacific alone. But on the industrial policy side, a lot of that technology resides in Western hands and it's backed by Western investors. And how do they get the message out where those that do have the intellectual and financial capital can bring it to bear and participate in Indonesia's build-out strategy. It's interesting because when I went to Bali several years ago, I know authentically that Indonesia is an industrial country, but there's no inkling of that when you're in a resort in Bali, none whatsoever. So it would seem like that would be the perfect place to do marketing. And I want to ask you, there's certainly some funds listening to this program all over the world of various sizes. I would say to you, can you speak to them as far as how they could potentially get involved? That's a great question. So if they have the commitment and they understand the story of just the 10 economies of Southeast Asia and Indonesia is a trillion dollar economy, it's the largest among these 10 economies. If they have a commitment that they need to be in this sector, then they need to demonstrate that by opening up an office in Jakarta and not just have an office in Singapore covering the region. Because that's a validation of their commitment to the Indonesian government, that you have a local address, you have a local cell phone, you're not flying in, flying out, has been the case for many, many years. Now, all things being equal, it's very difficult to do that now with COVID. But let's say we get over COVID. Let's say it's 2022. Investors are looking for opportunities. They want higher rates of return. They're willing to take that risk. Then the first thing is to plant a flag, a small office, start to meet with the market players in Indonesia, have discussions with the policymakers and the various agencies whose job is to help scale 
and deploy that capital that they provide. That's first and foremost. The second is something that our firm is working on is the digitalization of those investments. And what I mean by digitalization, looking at the digitalization of assets, turning them into digital tokens, which are in private markets, which can then be traced and tracked using the blockchain and smart contracts. This is an opportunity that we see not only in Indonesia, but elsewhere when we start to look at both medium companies who do not want to go down the IPO route. They want to maintain a degree of control, but they also want to be able to raise capital on their own. Digitalization of that cap structure provides an opportunity, and we think that's going to be helpful in attracting investors who would like to have a digital approach to the collateral package that they're investing in, backed by smart contracts using Ethereum and the blockchain and the portability that represents. And I'll give you an example. Most private equity funds, if you look at the LP investors in it, are pretty much locked up for the life of that fund. Maybe they're able to exit by year five, but any exit prior to that is going to be at a deep discount provided the GP can find capital to purchase that position. If you digitize a fund that would give liquidity to LPs to, let's say, exit after a one-year lockup because they could allow for their position, which is digitized, to be offered to another LP looking to enter that space. So we see that as an opportunity, not only increase interest and activity if Indonesia is able to lead the way or be a participant in that, but also to increase liquidity from a cross-border standpoint where these documents are digitized, they're immutable. It doesn't require you to fly into Jakarta to authenticate them. It's done for you. And you can be investing three swipes of your smart app. How far along is Panita Capital? How involved are you in this? Uh, hopefully to have an announcement in the next 30 days of our investment into such a platform that will allow us to launch a digital investment fund whereby investors in that fund will have their interests digitized and backed by digital assets within Indonesia. You're providing, in a sense, a way to get in and eventually out that is less cumbersome. The aim is to make it less cumbersome. The digitalization will help reduce the administration and friction costs associated with capital and fund formation. It will provide greater visibility, traceability, and transferability, or we say in this part, liquidity, for participants in underwriting these types of opportunities that we see in Indonesia. We're seeing this take place in the U.S. The real estate companies and development companies in that space are the first to use it, and they are getting traction in it. Indonesia has an opportunity to also participate in this, particularly with infrastructure assets and what we've discussed, the whole value chain of going downstream from the natural resource to its industrialization build-out strategy and how to participate in private markets with private companies in this sector. We're optimistic that this train has left the station. It's a question of how far along are we in the digitalization of assets. And I think there's a number of examples in the states of this taking place. There's a lot of, obviously, promotion about tokenization of assets. And I think the U.S. will lead the way in that regard. Indonesia has an opportunity to benefit from that technology. Again, importing the financial intellectual capital will be required, but it also provides a seat at the table as to how that rolls out. Indonesia is certainly welcome and open to that because the end result is generating more employment, generating more opportunity for its populace. 
Is it true that Indonesia is dominating EV and automobile production, exporting finished product to Asia? I believe I heard you say that in a previous interview. It would like to be the major player in the space. Part of that scaling up, again, deals with the downstream aspect. So 33 new smelter plants are being built and will come online in the next few years in Indonesia. Many of them are focused on nickel. Indonesia possesses all of the key elements of nickel battery production. Of the four elements, cobalt, manganese, nickel, and lithium, Indonesia has three of those elements. It does not have the lithium. So it's well positioned to take that nickel and move it into EV production. What it does need then is actual EV production. And as I indicated earlier in the conversation, several of the automotive sectors have made commitments in EV production. Hyundai wants to build a $9 billion EV production facility. And Tesla has been in confidential discussions with the Indonesian government over the last several months about doing the same. So I think we will begin to see public announcements and shovels in the ground of those facilities being built in line with nickel production scaling up. Now, having said that, Indonesia is already an exporter for the big Japanese automotive firms into Central Asia and Africa. Investors don't know that. So there has been a scaling up of the export of the automotive sector using Indonesia as a base. And it's just a matter of time where EV production will would fit into and plug into that. It seems like there's room for the American automakers outside of Tesla to really make a statement, make a stand, invest, and participate in this in Indonesia, like Ford, GM, for instance. The U.S. automarkers have a spotty history of investing in Indonesia over the last 30 years. Panita Capital was involved in helping Ford and GM back in the 90s set up operations here with 200 and 400 million dollar automotive plants and then after several years they basically shut down and pulled out simply because the Japanese have about 85% of the market share in Indonesia and so they were not able to compete head to head with Japan what they did is they relocated some of those operations into Thailand because Thailand was providing incentives for the US automakers to set up shop and look at not only finished automotive vehicles but also any of the OEM production facilities so we don't see US automakers here i don't anticipate them taking a major interest in Indonesia simply because of investments they have elsewhere, but that could change. And what that could change is how does China factor into continuing their commitments of building automobiles there versus offsetting some of that risk that they may perceive or is real and relocating to Indonesia. And they could do that very quickly. They have experience in doing that. We'll wait and see how that plays out. If you don't mind, give our audience an overview of Pineda Capital. Sure, I'd be happy to, Ellis. Pineda Capital, we've been in business for about 30 years. We are an execution management and investment firm focused on the strategic deployment of capital benefiting the growth opportunities that we see in Indonesia and the 10 economies of Southeast Asia. Our headquarters is in Jakarta, down the street from the headquarters of ASEAN. And we're excited about where this market is heading and how to both advise and invest in opportunities that we see a, a part of this growth narrative, not only in Indonesia, but certainly the other 10 economies of Southeast Asia. So anything that we can be of help, 
you know, look us up and happy to have a chat and see if there's something there that would be beneficial to collaborate on together. Ed, thank you so much for joining us today in the program. I look forward to chatting with you again in the near future. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Alice, for inviting me. I've been speaking with Edward Gustily, co-founder of Panita Capital Advisors. Questions for Mr. Gustily? Find him by going to his website, panitacap.com. That's P-E-N-I-D-A-C-A-P.com. I'm Ellis Martin. The proceeding is an unpaid segment of the Ellis Martin Report. Thank you for joining us today for the Alice Martin Report. Become a subscriber. It's free. Go to alicemartinreport.com right now. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com. Do it now. See you next time.